Welcome to Trust Issues, a podcast by Kepler Trust Intelligence. Please be aware that there can be a time lag when we release podcasts, meaning time-sensitive information may no longer be accurate at the time of publication. Also note that past performance is not a reliable indicator of future results. The value of investments can fall as well as rise, and you may get back less than you invested when you decide to sell your investments. It's strongly recommended that if you are a private investor, independent financial advice should be taken before making any investment or financial decision. Finally, Kepler Partners LLP has a relationship with the company covered in this podcast, which may impair its objectivity. We hope you enjoy the program. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Trust Issues. Today, I am joined by Gabriel Sachs, who is the manager of Aberdeen Asia Focus. Uh, so, Gabriel, thanks very much for joining me. Perhaps to kick things off, could you just give a, a quick overview of, of uh, what the trust does, what you invest in, and uh, all those sorts of things? Yeah, sure. Thanks, David. It's good to be chatting to you today. Uh, so, the objective of Aberdeen Asia Focus is to deliver total return from investing in uh, the most attractive smaller companies we can find in Asia, excluding Japan. Uh, the process is, is pretty research intensive as we're looking for quality businesses that are uh, overlooked and fly under the radar of most investors uh, and therefore are poorly covered by sell-side research and we have to do most of the work ourselves. I think in, in, to try and simplify uh, in practical terms, what we're really trying to do is to have a, a well-diversified portfolio uh, across uh, sectors and markets in Asia businesses that are leaders in their field with sensible management teams and prudent uh, capital allocation. And that can offer growth uh, over the sort of the medium term, three years plus. And if we get this right, we think we can deliver uh, very attractive returns to shareholders. And, you know, Asia Focus has been one of the top performing investment trusts in the UK uh, since its inception. So that's really what we're trying to achieve. Okay, so... I mean, on the point of inception, uh, you, the, I think people who are familiar with the trust will know that Hugh Young, who, who was manager for a very long time, I think had been at the trust since, in, or definitely close to inception uh, in the, in the mid-90s, left very recently. Um, so, you know, sort of hands, handing over the reins to you and, and a couple of other people, does that mean there's going to be a sort of change in the strategy or what, what do things look like now? Yeah, thanks for the question, um... You're right, uh, Hugh set up the company in 1995, a few years after he moved out to Asia uh, to, to really uh, set up Aberdeen's Asian equities business. Um, and for him, you know, since day one, uh, you know, it was very important to focus on businesses that had uh, or backed by people that he could trust. You know, investing in Asia back then was not necessarily the most fashionable thing to do. Um, and, you know, uh, governance, therefore, was very important. So I think I think from that perspective, uh, nothing has changed. Uh, it was very important to have boots on the ground. Uh, and, and therefore, I think one of the key things that he's done over the 30 years that he, 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 he led Aberdeen Asia Focus, but also Aberdeen's Asian equities business, uh, was to uh, build a, a team of, of today over 40 people, uh, research and portfolio managers, that really act as a as a big research platform for us. So I think I think that legacy lives on. Uh, and you know, uh, throughout the last several years, you know, most of the research comes from that team of, of analysts and PMs. So uh, 
you know, nothing has really changed there. I think um, I, I've been with Aberdeen for 15 years. So throughout that, that time, I've been working closely with Hugh and Flavia, who's our head of equities in Asia uh, for a number of years now. She's been and, and co-manager of Asia Focus has been working with you for over 20 years. So I think the, the philosophy and process is still very much in place. Uh, and from that perspective, nothing really changes. From a portfolio perspective, though, you know, uh, whilst we don't expect any material changes, you know, markets are dynamic and, you know, ever evolving. So we do need to keep up uh, with the changes that are going on in markets. So uh, we shouldn't be afraid of change. We, 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 we're not in the business of churning the portfolio very much. So turnover has been, you know, 20 percent or less in mo most of the past few years. Uh, but we have been refreshing the portfolio. Over the last five years, introducing more tech companies or asset light businesses, for example. And, you know, we'll continue to scrutinize all the positions, all holdings and, and, and compare that to the opportunities that emerge. So I would expect change, but not 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 sort of wholesale change in terms of the process um, and, and overall positioning as well. I wouldn't expect massive changes. Now. OK, so we'll, we'll probably get more onto uh, sort of sector weightings and things like that later on. Um, just for now, I think something that's kind of interesting or stands out when you look at performance for the trust over the past, let's say, two years at this point, maybe a little bit more, is um, you know, you're obviously investing in small caps. If you look at, say, US small caps or UK small caps relative to large cap performance um, in that time, you know, there was a bit, I think in the US, there was a bit of a bounce back last year. Um, but e even taking that into account, basically, it's since rates have gone up, uh, these companies have, have kind of struggled. A lot of the time, you could argue whether that's justified, but that sort of just has been the case. Uh, if I look at your performance versus um, you know, the large cap equivalent of your benchmark, it's actually pretty good. I think you've outperformed. And, and um, you know, when, when there was that sort of tough period, it wasn't as bad as it was for the benchmark either. Um, so why is that? Yeah, look, I think I think that's a really important question. Uh, it's something that I, I I've been trying to get the message out, but uh, certainly I think investors have been overlooking the fact that uh, Asian small caps have really outperformed large caps over the last several years, and you know I think they're assuming that small caps in Asia have had as tough a time as is the case in the UK and the US where they've underperformed. Uh, the opposite is true in, in, in Asia, as you say. So if you look at the MSCI Asia X Japan small cap index, which is really the closest benchmark we have, even though we're very different to, to even that benchmark. Uh, over the last five years, uh, that small cap index is up 50% in dollar terms, and, and the large cap equivalent is up only 7%. So that disparity in performance is, is really quite stark. It's 7% annual uh outperformance over five years. Uh, and that's not really talked about too much. And I think, as you say, you know, I think uh, particularly given our investor base with the investment trust is more UK focused. Uh, I think people do have the perception that, that small caps is higher risk and that therefore there's something to avoid at the moment. But, but you know, I think one of the reasons um, for that difference in performance is, is China. Uh, so if you look at the composition of both benchmarks, China is a much larger proportion of the large cap index. Uh, it was uh, over 30%, so it's around 29% now, and another five or so if you include Hong Kong. So it's a very sizable part of the large cap index, but it's only 
uh, 8% of the small cap index, or about 14% if you include Hong Kong. So given the underperformance you've seen in China, that has been a tailwind uh, for the small cap space. Um, but beyond that, you know, it's not just all about China. If you, if you look at India, which is another big market, um, you know, small caps have really outperformed large caps as well. You're seeing a deepening uh, in the India capital markets. You're seeing the growth of domestic mutual funds. And those investors, domestic investors, have been favoring uh, small caps and mid caps much more than large caps. Uh, so you've seen a, a very strong performance from India as well. And the other thing, maybe more specific to final point, maybe more specific to the portfolio is, is I think we do have a broader representation from other markets, particularly in, in sort of Southeast Asia, like Indonesia, like Vietnam, Thailand, which does give us a bit more diversification uh, from sort of mainstream funds and indices. Uh, and, you know, those mainstream funds and indices tend to have more concentration to the mega cap companies in China, Taiwan, Korea, for example. Yeah. And so, you know, I know the the process you use is not a particularly top down one. You know, you're not looking for sort of mega trends and trying to play them or something. But I think if you look at, say, uh, Asia large cap portfolios at the moment, they're very, they're, it's almost to some extent a mirroring of the US, right? They're very skewed towards a few tech companies, um, which I guess is, is understandable, right? They're sort of leaders, world leaders as well. Um, so, when you when you're sort of putting things together, do, do any themes like that emerge, or does it look quite different if you're investing at, in smaller businesses relative to larger ones in Asia? Yeah, no, I think there's definitely themes. I think we we do focus on on the business prospects bottom up, but uh, there's definitely themes that um, that are playing out and that we get access to through uh, or, or that we give access to through Asia Focus. And you mentioned tech and, and certainly AI. Um, is a theme. Uh, it's not just hype. You know, we were and, and have been quite positive on the semiconductor uh, supply chain uh, for several years. And, you know, we do see uh, uh, an acceleration in demand and a change in, in mix and higher demand for sort of uh, the more advanced tech, be it in very specific functions within the chip industry or the rest of the supply chain. So, so whilst the individual business will be uh, particularly small caps will be very focused on a particular niche within that industry. Um, you know, there is an aggregate or an overall <clears throat> trend there uh, driving this. And, and so AI is definitely is definitely a, a feature of the portfolio. Um, you know, that's not to say there isn't a bit of, of, of hype and, and some froth in, in places, but it, it is happening. Um, beyond that, I think the energy transition is a very big piece as well that has been gaining uh, a lot of momentum, um, especially now is, is perhaps, you know, again, the ESG hype is, is sort of a bit more balanced these days. The, the, you know, there, there is an energy transition piece, which is important, be it in terms of electric vehicles and the battery supply chain uh, <clears throat> or solar or just in, in the sense of how, how traditional businesses have to evolve their uh, their business models. Uh, and, 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 and so let's say shipbuilding, they'll have to. Um, the industry is quite a big pollutant. So we're looking at ways of, of, of playing that as well as, as, as companies, uh, you know, look to, again, adopt uh, lower emission tech or ships or vessels. And, 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 and you know, that's a very specific point. But, but those aspects of the energy transition 
uh, are very important across Asia, and a lot of a lot of things are made in in Asia. Um, the manufacturing uh, base of the world is in Asia, and, and as capex increases, which you are seeing as an overall theme, both in terms of investment in tech, investment in energy transition, uh, that's to the benefit of many companies in Asia and, and emerging markets as well. So, so we're, we're we are seeing this sort of uh, increased capex. Um, also driving quite a few businesses and, you know, within that capex increase, there's also a theme around sort of diversification of, of supply chains and, uh, uh, yeah, the uh, uh, China plus one. Okay, so to sort of come back to, to small cap performance and, again, this is on a sort of comparison basis, right? I think if you look at, I would say particularly if you look at the UK uh, at the moment, there's definitely some companies where, I personally sort of find it a bit head scratching. Like you look at it and you go, okay, it's it's got all of these, you know, it's, it's performing well. It's got good earnings growth. It's not got very much debt or whatever the case may be. And yet it's really being punished by the market. Um, on the other hand, right, we've just, as you just said, performance has actually been quite positive in Asia small caps over the past few years. So what do valuations look like? And given, you know, you, you've sort of touched on this already, but you do have that more quality focus uh, in the in the portfolio, does that mean you're having to pay a premium for those sorts of companies? Yeah, it's, a, it's another great question. I think um, I do think the UK small cap market does look quite cheap, um, and there are sort of technical factors at play as well. I don't look at that market that closely, but it certainly does look cheap. I think I think one of the issues with looking at valuations for Asia in general is that there's it's such a big market and big asset class that you try, you try to generalized but there is also a lot of nuance and uh, you know there's thousands of companies in, in you know 20 odd markets there so there's certainly a spectrum of valuations in Asia at the moment we have about 50 odd companies in the portfolio uh, we don't try to box ourselves too much in being a sort of growth or value investor you know we're just trying to find great businesses that grow at reasonable prices um, we only hold profitable companies at the moment but we will have some that are on the more expensive end, uh, you know, depends on what metric you use. But if you look at sort of PE multiples, which you you, you referenced, uh, you know, maybe some of the companies will be on 30, 40 uh, times earnings, which is on the more expensive end, uh, which typically would be uh, perhaps on, on the tech side or, or in India. Uh, but then we also have some really, really cheap companies that are on single digit fees and offering sort of a 10% or close to 10% dividend yield, which is a sustainable yield uh, in companies with a net cash balance sheet and low payout ratio. So it's it's quite a it's quite a mix actually, which we've got in the portfolio. It's quite interesting. Um, if you look on a blended basis, the PE of the portfolio is actually quite cheap as well. It's on 13 times uh, this year, uh, so full year 24, and looking out to full year 25, that would be 11 times PE. Which we think is quite cheap. Um, we have, I think, again, a bit of a mix of, of more legacy, cheap businesses, uh, and, and sort of more sort of new age companies as well. So it's 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 not your typical portfolio, I suppose. That would be very very. There won't be it won't have a lot of difference in it. You know, all the companies will be trading at similar prices because they are high quality businesses with high ROE and net cash balances. We have net cash balances high ROE, but actually some of them are very cheap. And partly because we feel that in small cap, uh, a lot of companies are, are just overlooked and unloved. And maybe these markets are a little bit less liquid 
so people haven't been paying enough attention. Uh, and if you look at dividend yields for the portfolio in aggregate, it's over 3%. Uh, so again, not 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 too bad. Uh, maybe not at UK levels, but uh, not bad for what is a, a growth sort of asset class, right? Um, but I think I think your point in general that you have to pay up for quality it, it does hold true. So we have to be selective, and occasionally we will pay up a bit for quality and growth. So to go back to a sort of the the earlier point, looking at how valuations have come down, I think if you Again, I don't want to keep bringing up the UK because I know we're talking about Asia, but I think the perception there is markets are obviously forward-looking and people go, okay, rates have gone up, so valuations as should as commensurately come down. And then I think there's also another component where people go, okay, if you're a small company, it's going to be harder for you to get debt. Your debt costs are going to get. There's, I think there's a again, there's a sort of lag effect where rates have gone up, and actually you might only start to see the negative impact of that playing out now. And so. Do you sort of see that happening? Do you see that taking place? Are you are you are you worried at all about what's going on, or do you feel confident with the the companies you invest in? Yeah, I, th- I think it's it's quite dissimilar for Asia on this point. You know, I think it it is a valid concern, perhaps that that small caps can be a bit more vulnerable to sort of interest rate increases because they're you know smaller businesses, uh, which. Yeah, yeah, they're more focused on particular needs, less diversified, so maybe have fewer sort of funding sources. But um, you know, the Asia is growing, uh, so I would say there's a big economic headwind at the moment. Uh, you know, rates have gone up, uh, but in some markets they've already started to come down. You know, I think uh, if you look at the performance of small caps, the immediate reaction post COVID uh, was that they had a bigger drawdown. But they also recovered uh, quite quickly off the back of that, because I think there isn't, a, you know, I think when you look at the macroeconomic policies in Asia, maybe excluding China for a second, but, um, you know, it has been quite orthodox. Uh, you know, companies are not over leveraged and particularly the ones that we talk about in, in our portfolio, they typically sit on cash. So if anything, downturns can be actually quite good uh, for their competitive positioning. Uh, and we also focus very much on companies that don't take on any unhedged sort of foreign currency debt, because that's what's really uh, killed businesses in Asia in past crises. Um, so I think we're, we're quite uh, uh, constructive on the outlook for Asian small caps. Again, it, it varies by, by market, but uh, we should see an acceleration in growth uh, this year in Asia. Um, inflation hasn't been a big problem. Uh, over the last few years, it's been lower than in developed markets in the UK for many of the markets that we invest in. You know, China is fully entering deflation, which is another problem. But, uh, you know, I think the economic outlook is actually is actually pretty good. Um, China is a little bit different where uh, clearly I think it's been less about poor earnings delivery. Actually, the companies we hold in the portfolio have been delivering decent earnings growth, but it's more about de-rating in valuation multiples and, and investors applying a higher risk premium to that market as a result of geopolitics and regulatory uncertainty. So, so yes, growth is slowing in China. They have issues in the, in the real estate market. Um, but, uh, you know, the economy is still growing. Uh, it's growing less, but it's still growing. There are pockets of, of, of the market that are still doing quite well. The consumer is in good shape. He's just not spending. So it's, it's, a, it's quite a... 
it's quite a different picture. China is in a very different economic cycle than the rest of the world, and and then Asia in general we feel is um, is actually doing quite well. And as rates start to come down in the West, uh, you know, rates should follow in Asia as well, which would be quite supportive for growth. So when you look at the what we're projecting for earnings growth for our portfolio, we're forecasting 17% growth uh, this year and 14% the year after. Um, so that's still pretty robust earnings growth. Um, so, so, so yeah, I guess we have definitely have no concerns around sort of solvency of our companies, uh, and it's more about um, trying to figure out which which are the best fits to have exposure to based on our uh, outlook for earnings growth and how much visibility we have for for earnings growth. So, sorry, that was a very long answer <laughs> to your question. <laughs> nice, it's uh, it's a good one as well. Um, okay, so 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 on the earnings growth point, I saw something pretty remarkable at the end of last year, and I think it was from Morgan Stanley, uh, who, who made this point that I think India earnings growth, and this I think was for the market as a whole, um, cumulatively over I think three years was something like sixty percent, and it was which was basically better than almost all the other Asian markets, probably probably better than a lot of other markets globally, right? Um, on the other hand, I look I look at India today. And I just think there's there's so much because of that, which is understandable. There's quite a lot of enthusiasm for the country. You've seen a lot. I think another factor is people, uh, you know, they don't want to be invested in China, so it's sort of like they're pulling out there. Where can you go? Okay, India's a, India's doing well, so let's go there. Um, you are, are pretty notably underweight the country at the moment. Um, so is that just a function of the fact that basically what I described has pushed up valuations to fairly unattractive levels? rather than there not being good opportunities there in terms of like the companies are still good. It's just that the, the valuation is too high. Yeah, look, I think it'll be another long answer to this. Uh, I think we, if you look at sort of developed markets, there's always chats about how the U, there's U.S. exceptionalism. Uh, and I think in emerging markets, there is uh, India exceptionalism. Uh, India has always been a more expensive market. Uh, because it offers such attractive growth and such an attractive pool of businesses. So to answer your question, I don't think India is short of good companies at all. Um, and it's actually been, uh, I think, one, if not the most, our favorite market since inception of the trust. It's been among our sort of top three markets uh, since inception of the trust. Um, our positioning is around 18, 19%. Right? It hasn't changed too much. But we did change the benchmark in 2021 to exclude Australia. So that underweight has increased relative to that benchmark. Uh, and India is a very chunky position in this new benchmark. Well, not new, but it's Asia X Japan benchmark instead of Asia Pacific X Japan benchmark. It's about a third of the benchmark. And the reason we're not at a third uh, of the portfolio uh, is because we are driven bottom up and we do think valuations are expensive in India. So it's not shortness, no. A shortage of ideas and good quality companies, but you know we want to be also a bit disciplined about the price we pay. So we have been adding new companies in India. But we've also been selling some. So so our exposure has been largely stable. Uh, to the point about sort of uh, how many good companies there are. You know, India is is a deep and broad market these days. Uh, it I think last week overtook Hong Kong to become the fourth largest stock market globally, uh, which in itself, I think, says something about, about the size of that market and, and, and the things happening in India. 
<laughs> okay. Uh, so maybe to, to finish off, I mean, one of the points you touched on in an earlier answer was this concept of, sort of moving moving away from China uh, for primarily geopolitical reasons, but I think actually there's also financial reasons, which is you know, China is not as cheap as it once was to just basically make stuff and outsource manufacturing to. Um, but I'm curious on the, you know, whatever the causal factor is, whether you see this as sort of meaningfully picking up and actually presenting opportunities. I mean, um, I don't know if necessarily because your exposure there, like the, your investment specifically, but it's pretty notable you have invested in Vietnam, which I think is off off benchmark. Um, I think I was actually in a tech company off the top of my head, but that is the sort of place people I think are looking at with this sort of dynamic in mind. Um, so yes, I mean, is it actually presenting meaningful opportunities or do you, or is it just sort of like a nice media story that people enjoy talking about, but there's not a huge amount of substance to it, at least from a, from a sort of investor's point of view? Yeah, no, no like I think the, the it's certainly happening, uh, whether you call it sort of French-shoring, new-shoring, diversification of supply chains, it is happening. It is a gradual process. I think China is very difficult to replace as a manufacturing base for a lot of businesses. Uh, if you think about the Apple phone, uh, most of the components or um, the supply chain is in, in China or Taiwan, and, and the way those supply chains have been built over decades is incredibly hard to replace. And that's just one product, right? I think it happens across the board with everything really these days. Uh, you know, China, I don't know what the exact number is, but it, I think it produces 30% plus of everything, <laughs> or most industrial goods and consumer goods. So it's, it's a lot, right? And the scale and efficiency that China has is very hard to replicate. But it is a process that's going on. Even Chinese companies themselves are uh, setting up subsidiaries in Indonesia and in Thailand, occasionally even in Mexico. Uh, but that process will take years to happen. You know, I think businesses definitely have started to plan and incremental capex is going elsewhere. Uh, and we do have, I think, decent exposure to, to this theme as well. And I think in aggregate, we also are quite overexposed to ASEAN or Southeast Asia, which is, I guess, the group of countries in Southeast Asia that often don't get talked about because there's so much going on in India and China that that's the focus. But actually, there's a lot of exciting businesses in, in Southeast Asia as a consumer market. It's about 700 million people alone. So, so just as a consumer market, domestic market, uh, there's a lot there. Uh, so Indonesia is 200 million people, Philippines 100 million people. So, you know, just consumption in those markets should grow quite nicely. And that's something that we want to have exposure to. But directly to your question, we also have uh, a strong exposure or a sizable exposure to Indonesia, which is 12% and Vietnam, which is approaching 7%, which, you know, is chunky. It's uh, off benchmark. Uh, you know, it's almost as much as we have in China now. Um, and that's, yeah, through an IT services business. We have a residential real estate developer and we've just started to introduce a, a, a local bank as well to the portfolio. And, and I think top down Vietnam is very exciting um, and, and bottom up. It's a little bit more tricky to access, but uh, certainly with this bank that we are introducing to the portfolio at the moment, it does, uh, uh, you know, indirectly perhaps cap capture the growth in the economy, which should benefit from 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 uh, nearshoring and diversification of supply chains. I think Vietnam is the clearest beneficiary of that. Uh, and this bank trades on, you know, one to 1.5 times book, has an ROE of 20 percent, 
loan growth, 15, 20%. So it's, it's a very, the metrics are extremely attractive. Uh, and for, for, from our perspective, uh, you know, we can be patient in building uh, those positions uh, because we are an investment trust. So, so the difficulty in accessing stock because of foreign ownership limits on, and, and all the rest of it is, um, is a bit easier for us, I think, than a mutual fund. Well, that is a good point on which to finish. So, um, Gabriel, thanks very much for, for chatting to me and hopefully we can speak again soon. Pleasure. Thanks for having me on.